Well, contrary to popular belief, pastors work more than one day a week. As a matter of fact, uh, this past week, uh, JP and I were with a group of pastors from all around New England uh, for three days, uh, meeting together at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston, uh, talking with medical professionals about a whole host of areas where faith, medicine, bioethics all intersect. And it was work. And we bring these things back to our congregation. Uh, Jesus was familiar with work as well. As we heard in our passage this morning, Jesus and his disciples had been preaching and teaching and ministering to people in the towns all around the Sea of Galilee. And one day, Jesus decided to expand his ministry and cross over the Sea of Galilee to the other side to continue to preach and minister to people, telling them the good news of the kingdom of God. And so when he shared the plan with his disciples, they boarded a fishing vessel and started to the other side of the lake. Now Jesus was exhausted. He was tired. He had been ministering, preaching, and teaching. If any of you here work in the people professions, you know how exhausting it can be. And so Jesus was tired, and he took the opportunity to have a little nap along the boat. After all, at least four of his disciples were fishermen. If anyone could handle a boat on the Sea of Galilee, it would be these guys. And so Jesus, after a long period of ministry, slips into a nice little nap as they cross the lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not a large lake. It's only about 10 miles long and 5 miles wide, and it sits 700 feet below sea level. That's what makes the Sea of Galilee so interesting, and it has high bluffs all around it, especially on the eastern side. Now, even on such a small lake, with that topography, the wind would sweep through there, and when the warm air on the surface of the lake would meet the cold air blowing through the cliffs, it would cause regular storms. And not just your run-of-the-mill thunderstorm, but these were gale-force winds. It was typical on the Sea of Galilee. And they could capsize a boat and drown even the toughest of fishermen. As Jesus slept, one of these storms arose. As a matter of fact, it was like the perfect storm. And as they sailed through, the waves began to swell and the wind whipped. And the disciples planned for crisis mode. And Jesus just kept on sleeping. Now, I don't know about you. I'm looking at a lot of wives here. Uh, it's amazing what people can sleep through, isn't it? Maybe you have a husband that's like that. It's like, when are you going to wake up? Well, Jesus was very much like that. He was just sleeping peacefully. Hey, can you imagine what the disciples must have thought in that moment? Here we are trying to reset the sail, trying to keep the water out of the boat, and Jesus just keeps on sleeping. When the disciples were finally overcome with fear and they could not hold on any longer, 
They wrestled Jesus awake, and they shouted, as the text tells us, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And Jesus opened his eyes, and I can only imagine as he opened them, he rolled his eyes a little bit too. And then he gently gets up, lifts his hands, rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately a miracle happens. And the sea grows calm. The dark clouds roll away. The roaring sea becomes as placid as a purring kitten. And it looked like a sheet of glass. Then Jesus lowered his hands, gave the disciples an annoyed glare, and rebuked them. The text doesn't tell us this, but this is the way I imagine it. You woke me up for this? you ever had that experience in your life? I remember it distinctly a couple years ago. Uh, pastors, especially pastors like JP and I, uh, where you preach multiple services on a Sunday morning. It's exhausting. Uh, I came home on a Sunday afternoon, and it was, I think it was summertime, so the Patriots weren't playing. The Sox weren't on that day, and it was pouring down rain outside, which is the perfect storm to create a need for a pastoral nap on Sunday afternoon. I don't often take naps on Sunday afternoons, but when I do, it's a real nap. So this particular day, I remember stretching myself out on the couch. Kids were upstairs playing, and I had time. And I, I remember drifting off to sleep, and I was out of it like that. And then the next thing I remember is just screaming, Dad, Dad, Dad. Dad! And I abruptly woke, and I thought, oh my gosh, what has happened? Did one of the kids fall down the stairs? Did one of them break their arm? I didn't know. And I, I shot up and said, what? And then it was, Dad, Duncan took my stickers. <laughs> and I thought, you have got to be kidding me. You woke me up for this? And so I did what any father would have done. I got up off the couch, I raised my hands like this, and I rebuked my son and said, get out of here. <laughs> Deal with it. Figure out some way. I don't care what happened to your stickers. I'm taking a nap. And I went back to sleep. Jesus did display displeasure not because they woke him up, but because of the disciples' lack of faith. There was deep disappointment in Jesus' eyes when he asked them, Where is your faith? Did they not trust God to see them and care for their best interest, even in the midst of a storm? When the disciples saw what Jesus did and spoke these words to them, they were shocked and amazed. They began to ask themselves, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The disciples were still trying to get a handle on who Jesus actually was. Now they knew from the Old Testament that only God has the power to control the wind and the waves and the natural elements all around. So here Jesus 
gives them another glimpse through this amazing miracle. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see the storm calm just like that? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were gradually figuring out that Jesus is God. I'd be willing to bet that most of us sitting in the room this morning has None of us have ever been caught in a storm that has actually threatened our lives. A number of years ago, I was sea kayaking off the coast of Rockport, Massachusetts, when a wind blew up. I'll say this, that when a wind comes in off the coast, you don't want to find yourself in a kayak. And I remember going over six, seven-foot swells. That was enough to give me a little bit of fear. But I knew that my life wasn't in imminent danger. Most of us have never experienced exactly what the disciples were facing here, but I would be willing to bet that most of us have been caught in circumstances that we cannot control. Like the disciples, sometimes we feel like God is not aware of what is going on in our lives, that he's asleep at the wheel, or perhaps that he's simply forgotten about us. When we experience the chaos of losing a job, a broken relationship, a difficult diagnosis, the unexpected death of a loved one, or some national crisis or even community calamity, it can throw us into an immediate panic in our lives. But where is our faith in moments like this. Many of us sitting here claim the name of Christ. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I believe. I believe that God has the power to do miracles. I believe he has power over the natural elements around us. We say we believe in the sovereignty of God, that he is in control, but it's in the moments when the storm comes that our faith is tested. Perhaps there's someone sitting here this morning that's facing one of these storms, one of these tests. Do you hear Jesus say, where is your faith? There are many situations in life where we are absolutely powerless. This is one of the great myths of modern American culture, that we believe that we're actually in control of our lives. Oh, and I know that Andover, Massachusetts isn't all that different from Franklin, Vermont. We make decisions, we feel like things are in our control, but... Every once in a while, God will send us a curveball just to remind us we're not in control. And sometimes we get angry with him. Sometimes we get frustrated. And our faith is tested. Week after week, I see people in our communities try to calm their own winds and still their own seas. God is putting situations in our lives that we cannot control to test our faith in Jesus. But people will try to 
cut their own anxiety with alcohol abuse or substances. They try to numb their pain, burn off their sorrow with bad decisions and destructive behaviors. And these only lead to more storms in life. Friends, Jesus is the only one who has the power to still the storms of life. Won't you put your faith in him today? Well, Jesus and his disciples had finally made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I think we're going to see it on the screen, but I'd like to move into chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark, because I believe that Mark sets up these two stories purposefully. Uh, the story of Jesus calming the sea is familiar to most Christians. We've heard that one before. The next story is a little bit more difficult for us to digest. In chapter 5 and verse 1, Mark begins to tell us that they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to them, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. As Jesus and his disciples made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and landed in this area called the Gerasenes, it was a Gentile area 
with steep banks that overlook the lake. We can only imagine this was actually a beautiful view. As soon as Jesus stepped on shore, he's met by a streaker running through the cemetery. Uh, how would you like that? Uh, first sight, you're getting off the boat and you see some unclothed man running right through. Unfortunately, there were no security guards there to tackle him and bind him and take him off to jail like we see in our sporting events these days. People had even tried to subdue this man with chains. But he had supernatural strength and they could not contain him. What a strange story we find here in Scripture, isn't it? But isn't it interesting that as the man runs up to Jesus... They had never met each other before, not a single time. And yet, this man knew who Jesus was. He knew his name. He knew his position as son of the Most High. Well, how did this man who had never met Jesus before recognize not only his name, but who he was? Well, this was the demons talking, wasn't it? The demons knew who Jesus was. They knew what his power and authority was. And immediately the man begins to beg, please do not torture us. Don't torment us. Don't send us into the abyss, which was the place of the dead, a holding tank, a prison for demonic spirits. They knew Jesus had the power and the authority to do this. And so they begin to beg him, don't send us there. Let us stay in this region. And here's where the story gets really interesting because it appears to us that Jesus acquiesces to the demons, which by the way, their name Legion uh, represented a Roman legion, which contained about 6,000 soldiers. So this man wasn't just possessed by one demon, it was many, perhaps even thousands of demons. It looks like Jesus gives the authority when they said, send us into the pigs instead of the abyss, because they wanted to remain in control of that region, which is actually the way demonic spirits work. Uh, very few people talk about it these days. We don't like to hear stories about demons, but they're very real. They're real in Vermont. They're real here in Massachusetts. And let me just say this, if, if you've never had a demonic encounter in your life, praise God. <laughs> but I bet some of you have. About 20 years ago, I was preaching on a Choctaw Indian reservation in southeastern Oklahoma. I was there on a mission trip with a group of college students, and it was my job on this particular evening to preach the sermon. Uh, we went to, to this little rural church, the whole village of Choctaw people came flocking in. We did some children's ministry, and then we were leading a worship service. Uh, we led the worship just like we did here this morning, and then it was time for me to preach. I read the text and began my sermon, and about five minutes into it, I saw the doors in the back, boom, 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 all at the same time. Now, that's enough to freak out a young preacher. I was about 20 years old at the time, and, I, and there was nobody there. And I thought, that is weird. There's no wind blowing. A few minutes later, the shutters on all the windows at the same time, boom, boom, boom. And I thought, oh, my gosh, 
what is going on. And you could begin to feel an ominous presence right there. I just kept on preaching, trying to ignore what was happening. I, it wasn't, I didn't do a very good job ignoring it. It was affecting me. I thought it was all going to dissipate until a few minutes later, there was a piano, not quite as nice as this one, but I could see the keys from where I was standing at the pulpit, and I hear, ding, 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 ding. It was like something right out of a horror film. I'd never had a demonic encounter in my life before until that day. I wanted to take my Bible and run straight for the back door, get in the van, and fly out of there as fast as I could. But in the back of my mind, I heard the Holy Spirit trying to figure out what was going on. I looked at my group that was sitting right down here. Their faces were freaked out. They were no help to me at all. But I heard this little voice in the back of my mind, just keep preaching, just keep preaching. And so that's exactly what I did. I just kept on preaching. And about 20 minutes into the sermon, all the weird things stopped. The ominous presence lifted. You could feel it. It all went away, and I finished the sermon, and it was as if nothing ever happened. I think the Choctaw people that were sitting there were so used to this thing happening in their church that they were almost oblivious to it. When we left the church that night, we were driving uh, back to our base camp. None of us said a word for 45 minutes until I finally broke the ice and said, did that really happen? And everyone's like, oh, I'm glad you saw the same thing because I thought maybe I was the only one. And we were sort of embarrassed to talk about it. And you know what I find is that most people who have demonic encounters today are simply embarrassed to talk about it. They'll have things happen, but they don't want anyone to know because they're afraid that people will think they're freaks or that there's something wrong with them or perhaps they've done something to bring this on themselves. I've had people in my own congregation face these things and have spent years just dealing with with this type of torment because they're too afraid to say anything about it. What's happening in this text still happens in our world today. There's a few lessons I'd like for us to take away from this story. First, we must recognize the reality and destructiveness of demonic spirits. Contrary to popular opinion, they do not only exist in horror films or people's imaginations. They're real. Some people doubt the existence of demons because they have never encountered one personally. I hear that all the time. Well, I've never seen one, so they must not exist. If we use that type of logic in our lives, we're in deep, deep trouble. But many people have had demonic encounters, but again, they sweep it under the carpet and just pretend like it doesn't exist. Also, in our modern, scientific, enlightened world, Many people just cast this off as if it can't exist. We psychologize demonic spirits. There are a thousand categories of mental illness. Uh, those of you who happen to work in the psychological field, you may be familiar with the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I've read the book cover to cover, and you won't find demonic possession as a mental disorder. It's been completely wiped out of the book. 
But I've become personally convinced, and don't, don't take this the wrong way, but most, I believe that most murders and suicides that happen in our culture have deep demonic influences attached to them. And certainly the ones that I have worked with intimately, I almost always see some trace of this. I'm not saying that everyone is that way, but many. Friends, don't be deceived. Demonic possession is real. Secondly, we must remember that Jesus has complete authority and power over demonic spirits. As we see in our text, that Jesus cast the demons out of the man and into the pigs. And then here's an interesting thing. The, the pigs, they immediately are so uh, worked up over the demons coming into them that they run and shoot right over the cliff. Now, that's a mental image, isn't it? A whole 2,000 pigs launching down over a cliff into the sea? That would be something to see. But here was the man who was possessed with the demon, sitting there now in his rightful mind, clothed, having a conversation. And when all the townspeople who had seen this man came out, they wondered what was going on. They were also a little bit mad because they were Gentiles. This was a pig farm. And so when all those pigs went launching over into the abyss, it drove up the price of bacon. No one wanted that. You've got to think about the economic impact of things like this. And so these guys were quite frustrated with Jesus, even though they saw the man cured of the demonic spirit. By the way, isn't that interesting that people just believe whatever they want to believe? Even if they witness a miracle like this, a man who they had uh, seen for years and now completely healed and cured, they were more obsessed with the bacon than they were about being cured by a demon. So let me just say this, that if you suspect that you have something like this going on in your life or perhaps a loved one's life, just know that Jesus is the only one who can restore. He's the only one who has the power to heal and to relieve. Thirdly and finally, notice what the demon-possessed man did after he was delivered. He went and told everyone what Jesus had done for him. Now, he wanted to go with Jesus and join his entourage and follow him all around, but Jesus said, no, no, we need someone to stay here and tell people what God has done for you. And that's exactly what he did. And he started his own ministry right there in the region of the Gerasenes. It's often true that those who, whose lives are most radically transformed by Jesus end up being the ones who are the strongest witnesses for him. And so let me ask you this. Has Jesus transformed your life? Has he? And if he has... Are you telling people what God has done for you? Mark put these two stories together, the calming of the storm and the delivering of the demon-possessed man to show us that Jesus has power over the natural world and the supernatural world. Do you believe it? I hope so. Amen.